Amen. Well, it is uh, good to be here again. I'm, I'm so excited to be able to jump back into the Psalms this morning. I've had a lot of fun actually going through this series, uh, kind of just going through the Psalms and talking through kind of the depth of meaning that is there. Uh, you know, the Psalms are interesting sometimes, right? I mean, sometimes we don't always ask the same question of a Psalm that we would ask of, say, a gospel or one of Paul's letters. You know, we read that and we're like, what, did, what do you think he was meaning there? But a lot of times we just read Psalms and think like, that was really beautiful. <laughs> and then we just kind of keep moving. Um, but I think, I think we can. I think we should ask some of the same questions that we ask of the Gospels and of, of the letters and even some of the other Old Testament books. And we can ask those same questions about the Psalms. And we can see the, the depth of meaning that is there in the Psalm. This is week five of our Psalm series. So far we've looked at Psalm 95 and we talked about worship. We looked at Psalm 63 and just kind of saw David kind of coming to grips with the depth of God's love for him. Uh, Psalm 139 was another one we did. It is David again coming to grips with another aspect of God. It was coming to grips with the aspect of God that he, he knows everything about him. Right? We, we saw David kind of, this, this knowledge that God knows everything about him just drove him to worship, and it should us as well. Yeah, last week we were in Psalm 98, really coming to grips with God's faithfulness. Uh, this week, we're going to kind of look into another one of the Psalms that will probably be at least somewhat familiar. Uh, there's a part of this Psalm that is used really often. You see it in paintings and graphics, uh, but again, we're going to... We're going to dig a little deeper this morning into this psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 51. So Psalm 51, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's on page 489. And uh, just as you're turning there, just a thought this morning. You know, this psalm has the potential to be one of the most, uh, one of the most humbling, convicting, and encouraging psalms. Kind of more, more broadly, just just even more broadly than just the Psalms. Like this can be one of the more convicting, humbling, encouraging pieces of scripture if we really do look at this. You know, there's so much depth here in these 19 verses. In fact, Charles Spurgeon uh, once said this about Psalm 51. He said, such a Psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ah, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? So I'm going to try. I'm going to try this morning. Uh, I'm going to try and, and comment on this. I'm going to try and kind of go into this. But uh, you know, that was that was a maybe not so encouraging quote to read as I'm researching this psalm. You know, the Charles Spurgeon being like, "Look, you're going to make a fool out of yourself trying to go into this." But we're going to try, right? So Psalm 51. Uh, but before we get into there, we really just need to go into the context. So if you open up Psalm 51, you'll see that even before verse one, there are these words: "For the director of music." A Psalm of David. Again, a lot of these Psalms are David. This one is as well. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So there's, there's our context right there. And in fact, I want to just, just go back and kind of relook at this story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, we're just going to read it. I'm not really going to talk about it. We're just going to go back and read the story of David and Bathsheba and let that speak for itself and then jump right into this psalm because this is, this is a psalm of David right after all of this. And so go back with me to this story. It's in 2 Samuel. Keep your finger, though, in Psalm 51 because we'll definitely be back there. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 uh, is where we're going to read for a little bit. 
Uh, and uh, if you're in one of our pew Bibles, on page 266, but 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is the story of David and Bathsheba. Before I read, I need to get a drink of water real quick. Hold on one second. All right. So, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David was asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped out in the open country How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next day. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the walls that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers, archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. 
But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord of the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. So here's the story. This is the background story here. Right? Now we get to Psalm 51. Let's read Psalm 51 together. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. This is the part that everybody kind of knows of Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take the pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings, burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So, as you can see, there is a lot going on here. 
between 2 Samuel and Psalm 51, there's a lot, right? There's a, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to process. But I think as we, as we process kind of alongside David here, you can kind of see David's kind of, he's processing in his own mind, like, what have I just done, right? He's processing, and in this psalm, we kind of see his processing, and I think we can actually see some really solid biblical truth kind of come to the surface in what David is saying here. And the first one is this, is that sin is serious, right? Sin is serious. I think David knows that. Just listen to the language that he uses here. He says in verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you could just say, hold on a second. It wasn't just God that you sinned against, but we'll get to that, right? Uh, Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 9, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. So David, in, in kind of talking about this and processing what's going on here, he understands here that, look, this sin is serious. These words make it clear that he knows that. He knows the seriousness of what he's done. And he's right. right? Sin is serious. Because as we sin, we, we defy God. Right? Sin is defiance against God. Now, verse 4, again, against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, again, automatically, you kind of pause here and you go... Not, no, <laughs> right? You kind of pause here and say, no, it wasn't just against God that you sinned against David. But here's, here's kind of how you can reconcile this, okay? I think, I think what he's saying here is like the worst of what I have done here is I have sinned against God. I have sinned against the creator of the universe, the God who made me, the God who fearfully and wonderfully made me in my womb. Remember talking in 139, right? We, we know that David knows exactly where he comes from. He's saying, look, I, I have sinned against you. This is the, the part that just bothers me the most. Now think about the transition that David has made here, right? You get this in 2 Samuel, David sins, and what is his reaction? His reaction is, okay, that's not good. Let me get Uriah home so he can think it's him. Okay, that didn't work. Let's do something more drastic. Now he's got to go out there. I need, to, I need him to, to not, never come back. Right? That he is trying to hide his sin at all costs. Right? David is like, I have sinned. My first reaction is, I need to be done. I need to hide this. Think about his reaction and transformation in Psalm 51. I have sinned, but it's like, man, how could I have done this? to God. How could I have done this to God? How could I have how could I have sinned against him? How could I have sinned against my God? There's this transmission. It's a it's a complete 180 in how he looks at what he has done. But I don't think I don't think we need to just kind of gloss over the fact that sin is doesn't just defy God. Sin affects many other people. Right, David's sin affected a lot of other people. This verse 4 is a little bit misleading when you look at it. Right? Against you, you only have I sinned. And we could just be like, well, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the baby? Like, What about all of these different people in this story? What about just your whole kingdom who trusted you to live out the way that you were supposed to live? Like, What about all of these people who, who were affected by your sin? Right? Sin affects multitudes of people like and that's true for us as well like think about David's sin David's sin it affected again a man was killed a wife lost her husband and there's a child lost its life as well now I'll I'll say this our sin might not have that drastic of effect like I'm not saying because of you sinned like two people are going to die and a marriage is going to be destroyed and like 
I guess it's possible, right? But, but other people will be affected by your sin, no matter how small you think it is. Right? David's sin, even in 2 Samuel, started with a glance. He was out taking a walk on his roof and saw Bathsheba, and it went from there. Go all the way back to the very first sin in Genesis. How did that start? It started with a bite of an apple. But think about the effects of, uh, we still feel the effects of that. Right? The, our, our sin never just affects us. Right? Sin is, is serious. And, and I don't think we need to, I think we need to just keep in mind the sins that we commit in our own lives often have effects that are far more reaching than we would think or that we would like. Right? Sin, is, sin is serious. But here's another truth that we get from David here. Sin is serious, but God is gracious. Sin is serious, but God is gracious. Uh, just verse 1, have mercy on me. Right? According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, have mercy on me. Uh, just, just listen to what he's asking here. At the end of verse 1, it's those three, right? Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. What's he asking? Blot out my transgressions. Basically, God, I would really love it if you could just forget what I had just done. I would really love it if you could just kind of just not remember this whole thing. I think all of us probably have those episodes in our life. Like, we just read 2 Samuel 11. There's probably a 2 Samuel 11 type thing in your past that you're probably like, I would really be glad if you just blot that out. If no one could ever read that again. If no one could ever see that again. Like, I would just... I would love that, God. But he's asking God to basically just, just take it away from him. Right? That's, that's pretty bold when you think about it. Like, hey, God, I know I just did this, but I, I, I'm asking that you would just, just not remember that. See, here's the crazy part of this whole thing. That David in 2 Samuel 12, you can make the case pretty solidly that he committed at least two sins. Right? One, adultery. Two, murder. Even God says, like, you killed him with the Ammonite sword. Both of those sins at this point were punishable by death. Both of them. Like, you, you could be killed for these things. Which actually makes Second Samuel, the end of what we just read there, when David kind of just admits to Nathan, like, look, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says to him, the Lord has taken away your sins. You will not die. Kind of makes that come a little alive, knowing that both of those things could have led to David's death. Right, but, but he's saying, like, you, you will not die. And it leads to... These four words in verse 7 that one commentator says are the most four important words in the psalm. And it's these four words. Cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse me with hyssop. Now, those four words are words that we here in 2021 are like, okay, keep reading. <laughs> I don't know what hyssop is. I don't, I, don't, I don't, yeah, okay, sure. Let me just tell you what hyssop is. Hyssop is a kind of a plant uh, and it is something that is, when used and put together and bundled together, can almost become like a paintbrush, right? You dip it in and it can hold water and hold liquid and you can, you can paint or you can sprinkle, which is how it was used in scripture. You know, hyssop is, in these times, if someone was unclean for any reason, and trust me, there were a lot of reasons to be unclean. Sin was one of those reasons. But if you were unclean for any reason, you could go to a priest and this priest would use hyssop and he would sprinkle blood on you to make you clean once again. 
It comes straight out of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, you, you remember this uh, as God is kind of explaining to the Israelites, look, this is how you can avoid this last plague, the plague of death. 12:22 says this, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the tops and on both sides of your doorframe. It's the hyssop that, that they, they do this with. None of you shall go out of your door until, or the house until morning. It's, it's the hyssop all the way back to Exodus. This is what they used to kind of put blood on things, to cleanse them, and to, to purify them. All right, later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we read about hyssop being used to sprinkle blood on people in sacrifice and cleansing ceremonies. So when we hear David say, cleanse me with hyssop, he's asking to be clean. He is referring to this kind of sacrificial process at this time that would have made him clean once again. He knows that he is unclean. He knows that he has done something wrong. He knows that he needs to be clean. And he's asking for God to be the one to do it. Would you cleanse me with hyssop? Would you sprinkle me with this blood? I mean, God, David is asking that God would just take his sin from him. But he knows that the penalty of his sin must be paid. Right? It has to be paid by someone or something other than him. Which is where we can't just leave this in the Old Testament. We have to take that whole thing, uh, being clean on the, on, because of the sacrifice of someone or something else, and take it into the New Testament. Right? You get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll read just a, a few different excerpts here. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves, together with the water, scarlet wool, and the branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Skip down to verse 26. But he has appeared once and for all, talking about Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages, doeth away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Get to chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see, do you see the connection here? Right, this, this cleansing with hyssop that, that David is talking about, he's talking about just the grace of God, that our sin can be covered Our sin can be covered in the same way that David is asking that his sin would be covered by the blood of a sacrifice. Our sin is covered by the blood of a sacrifice. His name is Jesus Christ. God is is gracious. And aren't you thankful for this? That that yeah, sin is serious, but thanks be to God that he is gracious. The question is, how do we have access to this grace? And the key to that is confession. We have to be willing to to confess. And that's really what this psalm is about. It's about David acknowledging his sin and asking for forgiveness. 
When you read this psalm, you can kind of see just kind of, even just, just kind of some keys to confession, like what, do we, what, is, what does confession require of us? And the first thing is it requires honesty. Right? David is not trying to cover over his sin anymore. He did that. He's been there. He's not trying to do that anymore. He is coming to God and he's, he knows, like, I, I can't do this. I, I'm not going to blame other people. I'm not going to blame other circumstances. And oftentimes, I think that's probably our fallback. Right, we blame other people. We blame the circumstances. And, and don't feel bad about that. That's been the case literally since the very first sin as well. Right, Adam and Eve. God comes and he's like, well, what happened? <laughs> Adam says, it was her. And Eve said, it was him. And inevitably, they both actually blame God. Right? Like they're, they're, neither of them is willing to say, like, yeah, that was my bad. Like, none of them are willing to say, it was my fault. I have sinned. But, but listen to what David says in verse 16 and 17. He's kind of just, just owning this a little bit. He says, You do not deny it in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. He's saying, look, I am coming. My heart is broken because of what I have done. I know that's what you desire. Now, he says, you don't delight in sacrifice. I'm not sure what he's trying to say there because every other language here is about sacrifice, even just the blood and the hyssop and all that kind of stuff. That's about sacrifice. I think David really does trust and believe in the sacrifice. But I think what he's trying to say is like, look, that, that outward ritual needs to be reflected inside as well. It needs to be reflected with a broken and contrite heart and a broken and contrite spirit. We need to be able to be honest as we confess our sins. I think we have to be honest, but it also requires humility. I mean, you can see this in David, like, I've, I've sinned against you. I, I can't escape this sin. There's nothing I can do to take this away. I need you. Only you can do this, right? We hear this kind of sentiment from David in this psalm, and honestly, this is what sets Christianity apart, right? It's not like, okay, now I'm going to go and say these words. I'm going to go and say this prayer. I'm going to go and do this so many times. I'm going to go and, and do all of this stuff. Like, that's not what brings forgiveness. What brings forgiveness is, is going to God, confessing, being humble enough to give up what we've done and to say what we have done and allowing God to move in our lives because we can't clean ourselves. But when we come to God with humility and honesty, Scripture is clear that, that God is faithful in all of this. I mean, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, this is, this is amazing, right? Even in our sin, as serious as it is, the grace of God is available as we are open and humble and honest and willing to confess our sins. So, sin is serious, but God is gracious. Confession is how we get there, but why? Here's the fourth thing I think we can kind of get from here, is that restoration really is the key. Right, restoration is the key. This is the end goal. Restoration is everything. Right, listen to what David says here in this, this verse that it's probably one of the more memorized verses of this psalm. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Now notice this. David doesn't just want a clean slate. David wants a clean heart. 
He doesn't want just kind of the effects of the sin to go away. He wants the heart of the sin to go away. David wants a clean heart, and he knows that he can't make this happen on his own. So he, he prays this familiar prayer, Create in me a pure heart, O God. I see the emphasis on transformation here. He's, he's asking to be transformed. He knows he has a sinful heart. He even says, like, I was sinful at birth. Like, he knows I have a sinful heart. Something needs to change. And this is exactly what God does in us. He recreates our heart. This word create that David uses here is literally the same word as we talk about God created the heaven and the earth. Like this is the same, same word here. A God, the same God who created everything, who created the world, who created the sun and the moon and the stars, who created the ocean and land, who created light and dark, it can create inside of us a new heart. And this, this same God has the power to create a heart in us. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You know, Therefore, if anyone was in Christ... The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here, right? We, we, this, is, this is huge stuff here. But not only does he give us a new heart, he renews our spirit. Right? He gives us the desire and the power and the passion to be able to walk the way that he is calling us to walk. And not only does he do that, he restores our joy. I don't know about you, I've, I've needed a little bit of joy lately. I've been asking for joy and praying for joy. But I want to notice two things here. God is the one restoring, and it's his joy. It's not give me joy again. It is restore to me the joy of your salvation. Right, we, he recreates our heart. He renews our spirit, and he restores our joy. And this is, this is what David was asking for. And I think this is what we should seek out as well. God created in us a pure heart. God, would you renew a steadfast spirit within us? God, would you restore in us the joy of your salvation? See, this song, I think, is so much deeper than just kind of the surface level, right? You have to go deep. You have to go back and see, like, what is David even trying to talk about here? But I think when we see this, we see, man, sin is serious, but God is gracious. Sin is serious, but God is gracious. And if we confess our sins. We can be restored to him. Amen to that. Amen to this psalm. I think this is an amazing truth that we see here in Psalm 51. Let's pray.